Psalm 5. Says this, Psalm chapter 5, and that's the chapter that has God hearing our voices in the morning. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. God not only hears our words, but he hears our thoughts. Before a word is on our tongue, he knows it already. And he knows our thoughts. Every thought. King David is saying to God, give ear to my words. Listen to my words, Lord, and also listen to my heart. What's happening there? Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God. Reading the King James Version. Hearken unto the voice of my cry. It's a passionate communication to God, not just words. He says, Lord. Then he says, King. Then he says, God. The Lord is Yahweh, that sacred name, tetragrammaton, that four letters, Y-H-W-H. And the Hebrews would not spell out fully because it's so sacred. And then the word king, of course, Melech. And for God, it's Elohim. So there's a singular, self-existent God for Lord, King, the King of the universe, singular. And then God, which we know is Elohim, plural. Every time we hear Elohim, even though it's a common usage in the Near Eastern religions to call their gods Elohim. King David and others, including Abraham, they acknowledged this Lord, Yahweh or Adonai, King of the universe, possessor of all things, as Abraham would say, is also the God. And the revelation of the Trinity is embedded in that word, Elohim, God. This is not unlike the approach to the Lord's Prayer that we heard recently expounded upon. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Begins with the living God, saying, you are the one to be worshipped. You are the God whose name is holy. Our prayers begin with the majesty of God, the goodness of God. Typically, that's the way it should be unless they are extreme, urgent, emergency prayers in which we just utter, God help me. It's a wonderful and right place to begin to take some time Because we're so used to wanting our needs met. We know God will give them. God is generous. We believe and it's good for us. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. But we need to train ourselves to declare his goodness sincerely from the heart and take time unless it's an emergency situation, to exalt God and remember that He is holy. Bless His name. Now here's the part about the morning, our voices in the morning, such as today. 
my voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct the words of my prayer in italics, meaning they're not there in the original, but certainly the references to the prayer. So they included that. In the morning will I direct unto thee and will look up, direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. It's a very intimate communication already in these three verses. Picture King David sitting there, whether it's in his palace, lying on his bed, getting up on his knees, or in the temple, the tabernacle, the place of worship. Looking up. Sometimes we have seen films and artist depictions of paintings where God will take Abraham by the hand, as it were, into the night sky, transport him by faith to count the stars if he could. God would say, this is the way I'm going to bless your descendants. You don't have any. But you will. From and through Sarah. In many nights, Jacob would have spoken to God while he was experienced that frost, tending Laban's flocks, being cheated by Laban. But God's hand was with Jacob, so he came out on top. But many times he would have spoken. David himself, as a shepherd boy, would have communicated Intimately with the Lord and it may be helpful for us. And that's why people, sometimes they go to the mountains. Sometimes they go out by themselves to watch the sunrise and they talk to God. The settings can affect our mood and our approach to God sometimes. But there's a higher place to go. That is, we carry the setting with us. Not simply by visualization or some mental technique, but by a spiritual awareness that he's always sacred and holy. And hence the Bible says, set apart the, set apart the Lord God in your hearts as holy. Sanctify the Lord. So if we carry that sacred reverence for God, no matter where we are, what the external situation is, we may be in a very confined space and yet connect with the grandeur of God because that's been our practice. So there's a habit where we are able to see the goodness and greatness of God. It's become a habit that every time we pray, we're into that mode. Again, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For unto thee will I pray, my voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. Now here comes a verse 4, which sounds negative. It is a negative. And uh, think about grammar, English, or any language. The statement is not a positive statement per se, but it brings out the positive attributes of God. 
So far, it's about prayer and meditation. And God is great. And I'm talking to him. Lord, hear me. Now he has to mention wickedness. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. Why? It's God's nature, but also it's a reminder and a declaration that God is righteous. And that's the kind of God I'm approaching. And the connection to be real, I have to also be a person that has no pleasure in wickedness or any evil. Neither shall evil dwell with thee. Some a couple of years ago, I believe, I spoke on um, Mary's prayer, Mary the mother of Jesus and Hannah, and the similarity in their prayers. They're separated by about a thousand years, but ten centuries. Hannah in the Old Testament and Mary in the New Testament. But the prayers are similar, strikingly similar. And these women who I mentioned are, were rather obscure. Just small people. But they were prophetic and full of the zeal of the Lord and the Spirit of God. And in their prayers, if you look at them, you see that they bring this point out about wickedness and proud people. These are women. These are wives. These are housewives. These are one among millions. They were not rulers. They were not known, well-known. They had no position anywhere. But they had a high position before God in the spiritual kingdom already. And part of their prayer had to do with the justice of God. Now these are women giving birth to, by God's mighty hand, Samuel was born. When the womb was closed for Hannah, God intervened and did a supernatural work. Far more incomparable, actually. Ultimately, he formed the Christ child in the womb of a woman who had no relationship with a man. And the angels said that thing which is conceived in you is of the Holy Ghost. That Holy One, Holy Child is born. The Son of the Most High, Son of God. Yet their prayers are just like David. What can we learn from this? We ought to recount God's holiness when we pray, His majesty, His unique supremacy in the universe and our lives. We ought to do that. Our Father, which art where? In heaven, high above everything else. Hallowed be thy name. You're so holy, Lord. Praise your holy name. You're holy. Okay, we get drawn to His presence in that way. And then, also, Lord, you're a God who's just. Thank you, God. As I mentioned yesterday and other days, there are all kinds of deities and religions in this world, thousands, thousands upon thousands, and then S-E-C-T-S, sects within the religion, divisions, groups, parties. They number more thousands. But which of those 
can we claim are truly just and holy, loving like our God? They cannot be because they don't exist. And the manufacturing of Satan to bring imposter gods, counterfeit deities, will only result in a reflection of him. And he is a liar by nature and a murderer from the beginning. And that's all he can produce. And so the false gods and false religions, they always have those elements. But our God, aren't you glad God is just? Imagine if we had to go before God and we didn't know if he was really just. You know what a fear that will bring? Imagine if you go to the immigration officer and there's a war going on. You need to get out. Or you're speaking to the people in the consulate. You're looking for favor in the hospital. It's a life and death crisis. And uh, you just don't know if the person, you, you don't know. You don't know the person. You know how people can be very mean, especially when somebody is in need. Have you ever seen that? Perhaps there's nothing more painful than to deal with human beings when you're in desperate need and they have the power to help you, but they begin to play games and to oppress you further. Already they're oppressed in a situation, gets oppressed further because of some evil person. Imagine if we had to approach God without knowing how he was. Do you know what a blessing, what an unparalleled blessing we have where God says up front his character and he demonstrates his character by every action, his righteous acts. We can trust him. We can trust him to the point of knowing that he will never harm us when we come to him the way we should, apart from rebellion. Verse 4, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. Let's be in the clear. I'm coming to not only the Most High God, the Majestic God, the Ruler of the Universe, but also a God who's not just holy by himself, but in his relation to creation, especially in the affairs of men, mankind. He deals in righteousness. Abraham said to God when he was bargaining with the Almighty God, and God allowed that to happen. Abraham was interceding. He was talking to God and God was talking back to him. There's a two-way communication in that wonderful prayer recorded in Genesis regarding the rescue of Lot. Abraham was trying to get Lot out of there, Sodom and Gomorrah, because he knew God's going to destroy the whole place and his nephew's there. And he carefully entreated the Lord and he began to bargain. And Abraham's point of contention with God in a humble way was, Lord, shall not the God of all the earth do right? Lord, I know you're righteous and I need you to step in, Lord, because my nephew is not bad like these people. Please get him out. Won't you do right? You're the God of all the earth, Lord. I'm appealing to you, the highest power, to intervene. Look, he goes further, some more negative things. The foolish shall not stand. Is this the morning prayer? Can we stop for a minute and say, is this the way you pray in the morning, David? Is this the typical prayer we may be expecting from people in the morning? 
What do we pray in the morning? Lord, help me bless my day. Help me to have this and that and everything I need and be with my family and protect me going back and forth. My vehicle, top to bottom, side to side, front to back. And Lord, help me to have a great presentation today at work, Lord, or my interactions. And Lord, my ankle's hurting. Please solve that. My husband's stomach is hurting and my wife's has a headache and the weather is really bad, Lord. Protect us from the cold. The roof's leaking, Lord. Help me with that. I have a list of things we can bring to God. And God delights to help us because he loves us. He wants to build a relationship. So we really come to a solid trust in him. There's nothing wrong with those things. He invites us to ask and you should receive. We ought to ask him. And not hold anything back because he's ready, willing, and able. And he will do it. He'll follow through. But this is a prayer from David. He says in the morning, and he's taking time to describe the attributes of the God he's coming to with his petitions. And when I say negative elements, of course, we're talking about things that are not positive traits that are mentioned regarding mankind and everything in the world. No, the world is not just an imperfect world. It's an evil world we live in. That's why the Lord said, you're not of this world. You can't be. If you're born again, you're from above. You're not of this world. You're in it, but not of it, because it's polluted. It's evil. And David is saying, Lord, you're separate from the wickedness that's around me. I have such confidence in you. I truly have a haven of spiritual rest and confidence. I can go into your presence, Lord, in the morning. In spite of the evil, I know you're not evil, Lord. You're righteous. Again, sometimes we are not able to appreciate all the things we have in our living God. And sometimes people who come fresh off the boat, as it were, from another territory, another religion, where they just don't know what their God is thinking, and they are afraid. Because they don't know that God or gods or goddesses are really going to favor them. So it's a gamble every time they come to pray. Can you imagine the nervousness and the fear that that brings? They don't know if their God or goddess is going to do something evil. That's the nature of their gods. But our God is not like that. Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. You're not a God like that, Lord. Neither shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. Very similar to Hannah and Mary's prayer. If you read it, we went over it and we heard that sermon. These women who are so beautiful in the sight of God, I'm sure in the sight of the husbands also, but the beauty was an inner beauty first. External beauty was given. Their husbands loved them, and certainly they had the glory of God in measure. But the greatest beauty was they were meek, as Peter says about a woman, a wife especially. The beauty that's seen comes first from the inside where God sees, and the husband and the family, and everybody sees as a meekness. In Proverbs 31, same thing. You see, there's a law of kindness in her mouth. There's a deep humility, but they 
roar like a lion, this Mary and this Hannah, not unlike their relative David. Now, Mary descended from David. Hannah, of course, preceded David. She was the mother of Samuel, who anointed David, so she preceded David. But the kinship is established by kindred spirits. Very similar qualities. And part of their prayer includes, Lord, proud people will not stand in your sight. You're going to level them, Lord. You lift up the lowly. That's the kind of God you are. So you think about me, Lord, I'm lowly. I'm a nobody in the eyes of the world, perhaps. But I know not only do I have an audience with you, but you will lift me up, Lord, because you love me. You're going to establish me, Lord, no matter what the odds are against me, Lord. I can go to you. You're God of compassion, justice, and mercy. The boastful, verse 5, shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. I pray that the Spirit of God is speaking to you this morning as you're hearing this explained. It's a morning prayer, and it's talking these things. You hate all works of iniquity. That's a reminder also to the one who's praying that I have nothing to do with iniquity, or do I? Iniquity means wickedness. Rebellion against right standards before God in any way. If God hates evil and evil won't dwell with him and he hates proud people, well, I have nothing to do with that either. Not just that I look at that person, he's proud or she's proud or she's evil, I'm separating myself. I must make sure I don't carry evil within me. And that's when this prayer becomes not only serious, but sincere. And I'm declaring the truth about God. I'm actually exalting him when I say he's not evil, he's good. He doesn't stop in this morning prayer. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. There's a vision that we catch as men and women of God and children of God. That God is coming. He's coming. That that theme runs throughout scripture. God is coming. And intensifies in the New Testament. But can I ask myself, can you ask yourself, how how much do I really want Jesus to come back? in all his glory, and set things straight in this world, which includes destroying evil. Do I have any any connection with that? If I don't, I'm not only the poorer for it, spiritually, but I'm kind of lost. I'm in a fantasy, lopsided world within me. All these things are presented in Scripture, and as I take it and say, Lord, yes, this is the way to pray. This is the way I should approach you, Lord. And the Lord's Prayer was preceded by many, many prayers, particularly contained in the book of Psalms. It hasn't been excluded. Remember Second Timothy 3.16? All scriptures given by inspiration of God for a genuine prophet building up for the people. And do you know the Apostle Paul, when he wrote that to Timothy, the young pastor and would-be bishop of Ephesus later, when the Apostle Paul wrote that, you know what scriptures they had? Well, they had the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament floating around. Just the Old Testament. That stage, it was just the book of James and perhaps Galatians and maybe another one or two books in the New Testament that were beginning to be written and circulated. 
So they didn't have the New Testament. It's a case in point that the Old Testament is vital for the Christian because God says it is breathed by God. God breathed and it will build us up. So if we don't have the Old Testament and we don't know what it says, we won't be built up like we should be. We'll be deficient. But if we take the Old Testament, not by itself, read it, grasp it, and make it a part of our lives practically in the light of the New Testament, would be like a wise scribe bringing in treasures from the old and the new, as Jesus said. Scribe who's instructed in the kingdom of God. We have the best of both. And how poor we would be. It's almost like a person who has a million dollars in the bank and never touches it. Keeps living very meagerly. Convinced that this is who I am. I know I have a million dollars, but I have no connection with it. Maybe they don't know how to withdraw it. So it's an inheritance sitting there, but there's no practical value. And that's how the Old Testament is to many, many believers. And we need to reverse that in ourselves if we are one among the group. Let's see what King David says. These prayers that are given by inspiration of God. Paul also says says elsewhere in the epistles, they will instruct you. He says to Timothy later, also I should say before, he says to him, the scriptures that are able to make you wise, a wise child, what you learn from your mother and your grandmother. Well, what do they have? What scriptures? What they had was the Old Testament, essentially. You mean the Old Testament can make me wise before God? Which part? The Proverbs? No, all 39 books. And look, he continues, verse 6. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, in our circle, we may say, well, I don't know too many bloodthirsty people, Lord. I know some cutthroats maybe at the office. Maybe among my relatives, maybe in the neighborhood, some people were really mean, but bloodthirsty. And well, again, we would opt to live in a fantasy world because of so much news available that just comes our way, even when we're not looking for it, of all kinds of atrocities. People are still the same. With the stroke of a pen, they commit murder. We know all about it, whether it's in the hospitals or from the governmental offices where they can actually not only change the quality of life with the stroke of a pen for millions of people, they can actually destroy people's lives. This is a reality. And David says, I'm well aware, Lord. I know you know too. But I'm so glad with this background, Lord, you are somebody who's just. I can trust you, Lord. In a world that's falling apart by the second, getting worse and worse. That's the truth. You may go to Disney World and try to avoid the bad things. You may watch a movie. You may spend time with the family. We can do any one of a number of things to just to escape and not think about the bad things. Well, didn't the Bible say that in Philippians? What sort of things are true and honest and good report, lovely and all those things. But I can't take those scriptures and completely ignore the rest of the scriptures in which a man after God's own heart, King David, 
whom we would do well to imitate, as he was the type of Messiah, foreshadowing the Lord Jesus Christ. When he was walking right, he was right on point. God loved this man. God, you know, almost like Enoch in the Old Testament. He couldn't wait to have him with him after he fulfilled his will. And you know what? Enoch and David couldn't wait to be with God. Wouldn't you like that kind of relationship, fellowship with God? Have God testify that this is the man I've really loved. Wow. And what kind of prayers does this man pray? What is the motivation and what's the implication? I can imitate that. But it's to my spiritual peril if I ignore all of this and just say, I'm going to stick with the New Testament. I need the whole counsel of God. And he says, you shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, which leads us to believe that he will set things straight. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. So when the exiles were in foreign territories, they would turn their gaze physically, geographically back to where the temple either was situated before it was destroyed or I should say, um, where the ruins were eventually. They would direct their gaze toward Israel, Jerusalem. And where they were deported and exiled were in Assyria, in Babylon, typically. And if there are any righteous people went down to Egypt, well, they would turn their gaze appropriately from the vantage point of Egypt on the map. They would look northeast. But typically they'd be sent to Babylon and Assyria, where we know, especially from our study of the Fertile Crescent, those in life training school, we saw that visually many times and we studied that in detail. Um, they were east, so they would turn their gaze westward, just like Daniel when he was in Babylon. He opened the window, he would kneel down and face westward because that's where his homeland was, where the temple was. In fear of you, know what do we do today? Well, we are the temple, but we don't gaze inward. We go, gaze upward because the head of the temple is Jesus with the body. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Again, someone may be tempted to say, this is not relevant to me. David obviously was a man of war. He was a king. He had a lot of physical enemies. They had physical battle and bloodshed. That's what happened. So it's not relevant, but it is. Do we not have enemies? We may not have national enemies coming after us. Or enemies against our country. If we're not in battle physically for our country. But we have evil spirits, demon spirits that continually try to seduce us to do evil. Tempt us to do evil and to destroy us. And they can come in various ways. Very blatant acts. To settle things. Which nonetheless are harmful for us. We have evil spirits that are always looking. Didn't God say that? 
to believers. Everyone in his body, every true believer has an enemy, the adversary, Satan, who goes about like a roaring lion. He prowls about, seeking to devour. God says, be on guard. You do have an enemy. And from that enemy comes a whole subset in the hierarchy of that underworld. Various demons that are specifically empowered to incite people to lust, to be greedy, to be selfish, and all those things. And further, there are human beings who are possessed by those evil spirits, and they are the vehicle by which God's people get seduced. Not unlike Moab seduced Israel to commit immorality. And they, these people were so strong, God just was speaking so highly of them. They got slaughtered because they took it for granted perhaps and they weren't watching certainly. And it came in a very seductive way. Lord, you're righteous. I'm on my way to heaven, Lord, by your mercy. But I know there's an enemy waiting constantly. But I'm looking to you and appealing to you, Lord. Help me never to take the path of the evil one. Never again. Because of the integrity, see, Lord, of my prayer, this is what I really want. And I'm doing everything in my power that I'm supposed to be doing. Lord, I need you to come and give that superpower. To thrust me and push me forward and accelerate me in the path of righteousness. Away from my enemies. Leave them in the dust, Lord. Through your power. I boast in you. Make your way straight before my face. More negative stuff. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. This world is full of lies. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Again, do we know about cutthroats and flattery all over the place? It becomes so commonplace that people, it just doesn't really phase anyone anymore. This is how it is. This is what it is. But it's not what it's supposed to be. And that's the difference between a genuine believer and the heart cry and the mourning that comes. Blessed are those who mourn. Remember the sermon on that? A couple of times we expand to that. That blessed are the mourn, uh, they that mourn, has at least three categories there. And it begins with, first of all, mourning for anything I've done wrong against God. Any negligent approach to the things of God or any thing that I've violated actively. I get that straight before God. I have a deep mourning and I repent. And then again, I mourn because of the situation in my family, perhaps where people are not following God. It's a, it's a cause for grief. I'm not, I'm not going to be a fake Christian, just be content with the new hairstyle and the promotion over there and uh, bank account is getting fatter. And uh, hey, I have a road trip planned over here. I'm going to go across the seas over there and lots of things to do. I, have, I don't have time to bother with their mess. Everybody makes their bed and they have to lie in it. But that's not compassion. That's not the heart of God. While I'm enjoying things and being responsible and walking with God, there's a mourning that comes because my people are not serving God. Nehemiah was a well-to-do person in exile. He was a cupbearer. But he was a man who had the beatitude working in him deeply. 
And you know, it was not just that, Lord, the walls of Jerusalem, I heard fire happen, Lord, and the enemy is taken over, and I'm grieving, Lord, my people, my people, the Jerusalem, the city of God. But then you see Nehemiah and Ezra and all these people, including who? Not just King David, but Hannah and Mary. It seems to be a characteristic of God's people, genuine people of God, that as they walk with God, the very feelings and sentiments of God, sentiments, begin to take over their personality. They're perfectly aligned with God. They enjoy, they, they don't become a hermit somewhere and carry signs and saying doomsday and end of the world. But they are functioning in a very balanced way spiritually. They know how to enjoy life and thank God for his goodness and really be humble. But also there's an indignation and there's a mourning and there's an anger, godly anger, not to take personal vengeance, but from heaven's point of view, I'm part of the army of God now, not just when Jesus comes back. The ten thousands of the saints. There's a prayer. Lord, my world is not right. First of all, within me, I get that right. My family, Lord, people that are related to me by, by blood. They're not following you, Lord. They're in fantasy land, Lord. They begin to mourn, so Lord, help them. And especially if they're overtly wicked, that means they're very close to destruction. I need to intercede. I need to be aware of that. That's reality. And then my neighborhood, my city, my state, nation, and the world. Bring it to God. Understand the situation. At the same time, the biggest relief and joy is my God has nothing to do with that. There's no part with evil. But he has everything to do with it because he sent his son into a wicked world to save a rebellious world. That's how loving he is. And I'm his messenger today to demonstrate that love beginning in my prayer closet. I care. God, if people keep rebelling, Lord, and they're going to disrupt kingdom affairs and they're actively standing against you, Lord, put an end to that. That's also part of the prayer. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. We used to be rebels, too. Did God put an end to us? So are we asking for inequity here? God let us off the hook by forgiving us when we confessed and repented, and we don't want the same for them? No. It's implied here. God is equal opportunity. He's all just. He will only bring such a prayer birthed by the Holy Spirit to this inspired prophet of God, King David, and to people who are walking with him when there's a finality to it. In other words, God has given them opportunity after opportunity. They continue to abuse that. They continue to bring havoc to innocent people. God says, enough, enough. And if I don't side with God at that point, I'm not on the Lord's side. I'm actually claiming to be more loving and more wise than God, which is the height of folly. Back to the positive. But let all those rejoice. Let all those rejoice who put their trust in you, not in the world, but in you. Let them ever shout for joy. Look at the jubilation there. 
It's not a poor me. I'm stuck in this world and people are so wicked and negative thing after negative thing coming out of me. And I'm just down in the dumps, grieving, grieving. No, David was a a, a man who celebrated God. And he loved to celebrate. God is the one who is the originator of the ultimate celebration. In the midst of this wicked world, Jesus also rejoiced. Because we have a connection outside of the world. Not to some space station where the same evil will come back because people who are not redeemed go to the moon or anywhere else set up a space station. We can claim great discoveries and great advances in technology and maybe medical advances through some means by what they discovered out there, gravitational forces or lack thereof, whatever it is. The world grows with knowledge, but also in proportion with iniquity while the knowledge is being discovered because they don't have a connection with God. But our connection was, is outside of the world, the heaven where God dwells. So we have cause to shout for joy because you defend them. In the midst of this mess, Lord, you're really protecting us and keeping us, Lord. Let all those who love your name be joyful in you. Celebrate. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You see uh, Philippians right here. Philippians 4.4. King David knew all about it way before Paul came on the scene. For you, O Lord, this is the reason, will bless the righteous. You defend them. Your righteous God, that's been established already in the prayer. And you will bless the righteous people, Lord. With favor, you will surround him as with a shield. Shield is so important. They had bucklers, these small shields, and they had big shields. And the Romans had their own shield later on. And those shields will be covered with leather, it seems, and then dipped in water so that the flaming arrows from the enemy could be diffused. But after all, no shield, even today's bulletproof and whatever proof shield there is, can match the favor of God which surrounds his people like a shield. Blessed be the rock. Glory be to the Lord. 